I believe from time to time, a healthy practice for us individually as well as corporately is to take a spiritual inventory of how we are doing in prioritizing and worship, worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, I would like for us to consider this together as we look at Mark 14. So if you can turn to Mark chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And while you are turning there, as a way of background or context. We are going to start in Mark 14, and Mark 14 begins the passion narrative of the journey of Jesus to the cross, obviously accumulating with the resurrection, right? And so as we, are, uh, as we walk through this passage this morning, we can observe two groups of characters that Mark presents. The first group would consist of the chief priests and Judas, and the second group would consist of the woman and Simon the leper. Because of their position, one group would be considered as insiders, while the second group positionally would be considered as outsiders to the kingdom of God. This contrast on a surface level may seem positional. It may even seem cultural or social, but in actuality, it is theological. Mark shows us that those who are considered by society as insiders into the kingdom of God, the chief priests, they were in a position of being close to God, right? They were, uh, because of the religion, because of their position of authority, because of their position of power uh, as leading spiritual leaders during that time. Positionally, they, looking at them, you would think that they were close to God in their relationship and their understanding. And then you also have Judas, who positionally was close to Jesus himself, right? He had an intimate relationship with him. He walked with him. He was there throughout Jesus' ministry, most of it. And yet we see them as rejecting the kingdom of God and even seeking the death and the destruction of Jesus. Here was a group who was privy to the holy teachings, to the knowledge of God, who not only refused to enter the kingdom of God, but also seek to hinder others from entering it. On the other hand, those often thought as outsiders, positionally an untouchable leper, right? Unclean, shunned by society. The woman, according to the culture back then, inferior, revealed by their actions and their priority that they were now insiders who entered into the kingdom of God and possess eternal life. It's interesting to see how Mark presents this narrative. It's like, a, it's like a sandwich, if you will. He begins with the hatred of the priests, and then there's the act of worship by the woman, and then there's the hateful treachery of Judas. So for our study this morning, we're going to combine the chief priests and Judas and look at them together and first, and then we will look at the woman. So think of it as like, we're gonna look at the bread first and then we'll get to the meat of this message. And as we observe their life and motives, I want to ask you this one question, and the question is, how is your worship? How is your worship? I can rephrase it, and I can ask it to you this way. Is your life consistently bringing glory to God in how you worship Him? I hope that you will 
be able to see, I hope that we can see uh, as we consider this question, that as we are thinking through it and talking through it, that you would keep this in mind that Jesus poured out his life for us so that we can have the privilege of worshiping him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And my hope for you this morning is that as we look at this passage, we would love him and worship him out of our hearts of gratitude and adoration for what Jesus Christ has done for us. I have two points, two simple points this morning based on these two groups of people. Number one, the preoccupation of the chief priest and Judas. And that's going to be verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. We're going to combine those. And then the second is the priority of the woman, verses 3 to 9. So let's look at the chief priests and Judas together. And as we do, let's read Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now look down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so the chief priests and uh, the chief priests are pretty much from chapter 2 of Mark. They're trying to get rid of Jesus, right? And from chapter 2 onward, there's nothing new for them in order to, in, in trying to create an effort, create an opportunity where they can somehow trap Jesus, where they can somehow get rid of Jesus. But now here's the Passover, and Passover is upon them, and this doesn't look for them or their plans. Right? Passover, as you know, is a very special time for the, the life of a Jewish person. This is the remembrance of the Exodus, the calling of a nation, and their relationship with God the Father. And so Passover occurred on the 14th of Nisan, which is March or April. And this was a very big occasion. This was a great celebration. Historians tell us that as many as 50,000 or more people would come and visit. They, will, they would trek, they would journey to Jerusalem as a pilgrimage during the time of Passover. And you remember even Jesus, he traveled with his parents at the age of 12 to celebrate Passover. And so now Passover is here. And again, the chief priests have missed the opportunity to get rid of Jesus before this can happen. And obviously they didn't want to draw attention to themselves, right? They didn't want to do something in public they wanted to do it in secrecy, but now there's so many more people and it would be much more difficult to, to follow through with their plan. In fact, the, the, the potential of starting a riot, causing chaos in the city would be detrimental. It would go completely against their plan and their, their purpose in, in wanting to get rid of Christ. So unfortunately, the plans of the chief priests would have to wait until after Passover. But when you look at the flow of the passage, it's much easier to read those last two verses together, and then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And so you see that in the midst of all this that's happening, Judas has decided in his heart that he's going to go and betray Jesus, and he seeks out the leaders himself, and he wants to help them. They even promised him money, and now we actually see the motivation of Judas. He is in it for himself. He is in it for the payoff. And now the plans of the chief priests can pr proceed. 
because now they have an insider. They have Judas, who knows Jesus' schedule, who knows what Jesus is going to be doing in and out. And now they can arrest him in secrecy. And even though they knew that the Passover wasn't the best time, I, I think Judas's willingness forced them to move forward and ahead of their own schedule. But we know that this was not the plan of man, right? This was not the man, plan of man that was coming to fruition, but it was the plan of God from the beginning for the redemption of his people. When you think about it, isn't it interesting that here are the insiders who sat under the teachings of the law, who anticipated, who waited, who longed for the Messiah. They even sat under the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught them day and night, and yet their hearts were truly not drawn to the truth or the gospel. And especially for Judas, who had such an intimate fellowship with our Lord. He ate with him, he ministered with him, he saw and the display of God's power through Christ. And yet his heart was, his heart was hard as a rock. He was so close to Jesus every day, yet he was so far from entering the kingdom of God. In the secret chambers of the heart, hearts of these in insiders dwelt only selfishness, pride, and the pursuit of the world. I think this is a great reminder for us all that it is such a blessing to hear the gospel and be part of a great church, and yet it can also be a tremendous danger when we start to become apathetic towards it. You know, in our community group, I tell our people, I tell those that come to our group, this is a very unique season in your life to be part of this church, to be part of this fellowship. There are so many people that long to have this type of intimate relationship with one another, to be part of a church where there's a high view of God and a high view of scripture. It's easy to become complacent and even develop a false confidence that I'm doing all right because you know, I'm better than him or her, or that I'm crossing off my spiritual to-do list. I'm okay. We can even look at our own church and compare it to others, to the other churches surrounding us, or even our pastor, and compare him to the other pastors who, sadly, there are many that have fallen, even in the Chicagoland area, that have fallen from ministry. And it's easy to see that and look at where we are and become comfortable. It, was, it would do us well to practice humility and guard our hearts from being puffed up with pride and arrogance. And so while the chief priests and Judas planned and sought the opportunity, we come to a second point and Mark introduces to this woman and her priority of anointing Jesus. Mark kind of does a, a flashback and tells us of a, an incident that took place when Jesus first arrived in Bethany a week ago before the Passover. And so it begins with an act of worship for Jesus' preparation to the cross. Look with me at uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why has the anointment been wasted like that? For this anointment, ointment, sorry, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. 
But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So against the backdrop of hate and treachery of Judas and the chief priests, here's the contrast of love and worship of this woman. The woman, as well as Simon the leper, were considered outsiders, right? If you lived during the time of Jesus in the Middle East, you did not want to be a leper because they were cast out of society. I came out across this little excerpt about leprosy during biblical times. It says, incurable by man, many believe God inflicted the curse of leprosy upon the people for the sins they committed. A leper wasn't allowed to come within six feet of any other human, including his own family. The disease was considered so revolting that the leper wasn't permitted to come within 150 feet of anyone when the wind was blowing. Lepers lived in a community with other lepers until they were either better, they got better, or they died. This was the only way the people knew to contain the spread of a contagious forms of leprosy. Along with leprosy, women, they were not recognized on the same level as men, sadly. They did not hold the same place of honor as men did in the ancient times. In fact, during historical periods, Uh, covered by the Bible, most societies were patriarchal, meaning men held exclusive power with rare exception of like a, maybe a ruling queen. So these power dynamics extended to every part of life, including religion, government, and family. And so we have these insiders, and yet these insiders, I'm sorry, outsiders, and yet these outsiders are now part of God's kingdom because of Jesus. The good news that Jesus brought brought them into the fold, an adopted family of God. So let's look at this event a little bit more closely to see the beautiful display of worship by this woman specifically. I think the Gospel of Matthew uh, and John gives us uh, more detail to fill in some of the gaps to better help us understand where Mark left off some of the details. And the account of Jesus um, in Matthew 26, 6 through 13, and verses 12, 1 through 8, are the specific places where uh, this story is being told. And just so no one is confused, there's also another story in Luke 7, but this is a different woman and a different circumstance. So we're going to focus on Matthew 26 and John 12. John really helps us understand this account by, better by telling us that this account occurred six days before Passover. So it was most likely Saturday when Jesus came into Bethany, as Passover was usually celebrated on Friday. And Mark, starting in chapter 14, begins with the chief priests who two days before Passover, they decided to seek out Jesus and and seek to kill him. John, I think, also sheds a light on who this woman is, and it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Jesus was a guest at the house of Simon the leper. So obviously, Simon was a leper at one time, and Jesus most likely healed him. And so now Jesus has been invited to the house of Simon. 
And Jesus goes to his house for, for dinner with his disciples and with Simon's family. And while Jesus is reclining, Mary enters the room with a sealed alabaster jar and does something unthinkable. She pours out the entire jar to anoint Jesus. This alabaster jar was, was a vessel about 10 to 12 ounces with a long neck and a seal, which was broken when you wanted to use its content. And this bottle contained pure nard, which is very costly. This nard is actually made from a root of a plant which is found in the Himalayas in India. And the language suggests that Mary not just broke the seal, but she broke the jar in such a way that she planned to use all of the perfume that was inside the jar. This meant that she was not planning on saving any of it. It was used in totality. We know how we know that this was an expensive perfume because it tells us that it cost 300 denarii. And it's calculated that 300 denarii was about a year's wage for an average person. So if you look at it compared to us, calculating today, today's cost, an average medial income in the US is per person is about $50,000. So can you imagine spending that much on perfume? Okay, confession time. My wife, my lovely wife, tells me that I have expensive hobbies, such as golf and others, which I will not name. But one of the things that I enjoy doing is actually <laughs> collecting colognes and looking for expensive colognes. And so my brother and I, as we have been growing up, and, and especially when we were younger, we would challenge each other. It'd be a game to go to like a Nordstrom or a nice high-end store to see how many different samples of colognes we could get. Um, I have samples at home of colognes that cost up to $500 a bottle. Now, obviously I can't afford that cologne, but just like Costco, a free sample is worth it, right? And so can you imagine, can you imagine a bottle 100 times what I have as a sample? Here is Mary who just spent today's equivalent of almost $50,000 for a jar of pure nard to use on Jesus. This perfume would have lasted a very long time for her because they would only use very little amounts of it. In fact, this bottle could have lasted for generations in a family. And yet, she doesn't use just a drop, she uses the entire bottle. And the aroma, can you imagine the aroma that must have filled that house, permeated outside where people walking by could have probably smelled it. You see, she gave Jesus all that she had of significant value. She prioritized Christ. And what happens next? Immediately there, there's an upset. There's people that are upset. They're indignant and they began to scold her. They lashed out at her with loud and noisy disapproval by the word and gesture. Mark in his haste doesn't give us much detail, but John actually tells us that it was specifically Judas who was leading this group of people. What she did was countercultural. It went against everything that was understood by the people that were there. And isn't it true of us in our walk with Christ? Following Jesus is countercultural. It goes against everything when it, that this world has to offer. 
it goes against everything that this world says when it comes to the cost of worshiping Christ. In fact, A.W. Tozer reminds us, worshiping, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than Christ within us. So now Judas, who was the treasurer amongst the disciples, and John tells us that he was also a thief. He gets upset. He's indignant at what she just did. I can almost picture, if you see, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, you can see those dollar bills like floating away in Judas's head. Judas saw the money signs floating away and you know, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily upset or concerned about the poor. He wasn't concerned about being able to help others by using this money. No. He was more concerned about fe feeding his own selfish desires and filling his own pockets with this money. And so he even tries to play this, this caring and charitable card by saying, this money could have been given to the poor. So he tries to mask his motive in wanting to give money to the poor. And there's a good reason why he said this, because during the time of Passover, it was actually customary to give to the poor. This was a common practice of gifting to the less fortunate that were in the city. And so it made sense when he said that. But immediately Jesus comes to the defense of Mary. He tells them that what she did is good. He reminds them that they will always have the poor. But the time of Jesus was ending and he would not be with them for too long. As we read in our Old Testament passage, it is good to give. It is good to take care of the poor and the sick and the needy. Jesus knew what Mary did was an act of worship, the overflowing love and devotion for her Lord. One pastor says this, he says, adoring worship of Christ is the ultimate priority. Giving to the poor has a place. The ultimate priority is to worship Christ. Care for the poor is important. Worship of the Lord is more important. Charity is good. Charity is necessary. Worship is always better. And true worship will lead to charity. Jesus is letting them know that their priorities must be in order. While he was with them, their priority was to worship him. By allowing Mary to anoint his feet, it affirms that Jesus is the Messiah King, and it also once again confirms that he's equal to God the Father. The, the bridegroom is still with them. He has not left yet. He will be leaving soon. But while he's still there, the priority and focus should be on him. The time of fasting and mourning is coming soon, but not yet. What Mary does serves another pur purpose, according to Jesus. Jesus says something very shocking. Look at verse 8. It says, Mary's act of worship also served as an anointing of his body in preparation of burial. You see, it was a Jewish custom and right that the body before burial be anointed with perfume and spices. And in fact, this, this spike nard, the, the bottle that she used, would be used in helping prepare for burial for a dead. This helped with the rotting stench 
of the body once the body was buried or once the body was put into a tomb. And the people in the house would know this. They would understand exactly what Jesus meant as he points this out, that what she did unconsciously rendered to him while still living was honor him for his burial. And what she did will always be remembered. So think about it, even now this morning as we are reminded of the cross and reminded of the road that Jesus was on to the cross, we stop and remember what Mary did for Jesus in preparation for that journey. Let me ask you this. What do we observe from the act of worship by Mary? I mean, why did Mary do what she did? Think, that, think about that for a second. Do you think she knew what she was doing when she did it? Personally, I think Mary knew what she was doing. Many commentaries will say that she did not know what she was doing, but I think she did. What motivated Mary to worship Jesus as she did? I can stand here, we can sit down, and we can talk and debate for hours on the theological or anthropological implications of, of Mary and her motivation. I think just putting it all aside, can I give you the, the most simplest answer? Mary worshiped Jesus Christ because she loved him. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. Because she loved him. Why did she love him? She loved him because she believed in who he was and what he said he could do for her life. It was the mercy and the grace and the love of God that transformed her. And now she was no longer an outsider, but she was adopted into the family of Christ. Scripture tells us not too long before this incident, she had experienced Jesus bringing her brother Lazarus back to life from the dead, right? She also is the same Mary that sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha was running around the house, busying herself with work. Jesus said to them in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. She believed the good news of Jesus, and she saw the power of Jesus which transformed her from the inside out. Do you remember her response when Jesus said this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. One author writes this, God's love first transforms our heart, then it changes our behavior. He does transform our outer, more noticeable behavior where we usually focus. But this transformation has its genesis in the renovation of the hidden inner person. You can see that the overflow or the outpouring of Mary's worship is the result of a new heart, a renovated heart, a heart of flesh and not of stone. When we are motivated by this type of sacrificial agape love, we can't help but worship our Lord in heart and in our actions. Friends, do you prioritize and value Christ above all else? Are you motivated by a desire to worship our Lord in totality? 
We should not worship out of fear or guilt, but out of a love and adoration for our Lord. The message, the message of the gospel and the pages of scripture remind us that it was only because of the outpouring of Jesus' life that you and I can now be insiders into the God's kingdom ourselves. We were once outsiders, right? We were just like Mary and Simon at one point. We were outcasts. We were enemies of God. But when Jesus poured out his life in totality for you and me, just as Mary poured out that perfume in totality in her worship to the Lord, then we can appreciate the importance, the significance, the value of who Christ is in our life. When you meditate on this truth, I hope that it will produce within you a heart of worship towards him. And let me add this footnote to clarify Mary's motive. Please don't leave here today. Please don't leave the service thinking, I have to do what Mary did. Mary does not anoint Jesus so that she can gain more merit or favor. Her motivation is not, how can I work my way into the kingdom or have a better position in the kingdom? She is not loved any less by Jesus if she didn't anoint him. Her motivation to worship was out of the overflowing love and a heart of gratitude for her Lord. Let me give you an illustration to help you understand this a little bit better. I think my children sometimes teach me more than I teach them. <clears throat> Specifically, our older son, Zion, I think he has a great, sweet um, disposition, and he's very, very aware of what's going on around him, especially when my wife or where, when I'm sick. And so if you know our story uh, and you know, you know the things that we go through, you would know that, you know, Jenny, when she gets tired or her body is crashing, when she has a headache, uh, we as a family are very sensitive to how she's doing. <clears throat> so I remember a, a time, a, a memory, where my wife said to me, I have a headache. Uh, I'm going to go lie down. I'm not feeling well. And, you know, Zion heard that in the passing at some point. And so later in the day, when she was laying down, he went to her sat next to her, or laid down next to her, and started rubbing her head. And Jenny asked him, son, what are you doing? And Zion, he said, I just wanted to make you feel better because I love you. My wife, Jenny, she did not ask him to do this, right? He did this out of his own desire. Zion knows that he will not be loved any less by mommy and daddy if he doesn't do this. He knows that we're not going to withhold a dinner from him or punish him if he doesn't serve us the way we serve him. He loves his mother, and he sees that all that she's done for him, and it is out of his love for his mom that he wanted to serve her. You see, our Lord poured out his life for us in the same manner, in totality. He became that perfume, that sweet aroma to the nostrils of God the Father, to satisfy his justice and wrath. This was the only way. There was no other way. But this is also our hope. 
This is also our motivation, that we are now insiders accepted by the Father because of the work of our Lord and Savior. And as you consider what Jesus has done for you, friends, I ask you to examine your life and ask yourself, is there anything that you are holding back when you worship the Lord in your own life? What keeps you from worshiping the Lord as he deserves to be worshiped every day? What are the distractions that are consuming your life even today? Is it COVID? Is it your relationships? Is it your job? Is it your health? Is it your future? I can keep going and you can just fill in the blank. We are constantly consumed and distracted by this world. I think that's why it's important to examine our lives every so often, to check ourselves, to, to do an inventory. I think we all need to heed the exhortation of Revelations too, as we examine our own hearts to the letter to the church of Ephesus. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did first. Friends, remember your first love. Remember your first love. If there is anything in your life that you have substituted in place of Jesus or prioritized other things over Jesus, I encourage you to turn back Run towards him. He's waiting for you. Cultivate a heart of worship by reorienting your priorities and meditating on the cost of Christ through his love and sacrifice. As we have looked at this story this morning, my hope for you is that it will remind you, it will motivate you to pour out in worship and adoration for our Father who rescued us from eternal separation and death, who brought us into his life, into his family, with a new life. Let us not become apathetic in our worship of our Lord. May the gospel displayed in the work of our Lord lead you to worship him as he deserves to be worshiped with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word, I thank you, Lord, for first of all convicting me as I share this, that so often we are prone to wander, Lord. Bind us close to your heart. Let us not forget our first love. Father, you who sent your son, your only precious son, whom you loved, so that we can be rescued, so that we can become insiders so that we can have this intimate and personal and holy relationship with you, a righteous relationship with you. Father, forgive us 
where we have stumbled, where we have fallen, where we have departed. Father, may your spirit lead us and guide us. Lord, may we submit to your spirit, humble ourselves, and return. Father, because you are so worthy, you are so worthy of so much more than we could even offer. But you are worthy. Help us, Lord. And through that, may we be the example, a light to our community and to our family to show them the priorities that it is not of this world, but it is of Christ. Amen. As we transition into the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of how Christ poured out for you and for me, for our sins and our, for our transgressions. I think we have a tangible reminder of the love of Jesus as we submit to the Father in obedience. And so we get to now participate in the, the Lord's Supper. And in God's wisdom, I think knowing that we are fickle and forgetful creatures, I think participating in the Lord's Supper is a way for us to remember his sacrifice, to bring us back. I would even say that the Lord's Supper is worship, honoring our Father through the Son. And so if you have been saved this morning and you understand the depth of your sin and the great Savior who has rescued you from eternal death and separation, I invite you to participate with us. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And now we will sing our last song. And as we do, please don't forget to pick up your kids. Or there is no kids, we're good? We're good. <laughs>